Welcome to Novel Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. In every episode, we'll bring our big English teacher energy, discussing the modern literary landscape in context with the classics. Along the way, we'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, we're discussing A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. It is not unheard of, but it's been a while, I think, for us to talk about some nonfiction on the podcast. Yeah, it's definitely not frequent. Yeah. Yeah, we've done a couple. I feel like most of the nonfiction we've done has been in this vein of like feminist classics. So it feels Mm -hmm. very uh, true to form that we would pick up A Room of One's Own during our modernism semester. So let's let's get right into it, Chelsea. Like what is your past experience with this text? It's been a while since I had read it. I know that I read it in college. I think I might have read it in grad school. I don't remember when I read it in its entirety versus when I just read excerpts. So it had been a while since I really read it beginning to end. And yeah, that's really it. Like I knew that I had read it, but I really couldn't remember when, where, how. What I think about it's you, often excerpted. I, I think it's rare for, yeah. for classes to assign the full text. I'm not sure I was ever assigned to read the full text because there's so much variety in what she's discussing that depending on the subject matter of of the class, I feel like professors generally just pull. Plus, like, the connective tissue between each is so interesting, but Mm -hmm. you can get so much deeper with just an an excerpt. So I feel like probably a lot of people have read excerpts and not the whole thing, like, cover to cover. Um, There are definitely, I feel like, some lulls in it and some, like, very um, poignant moments. Um, yeah, I, it's one of those, like, I, I feel both like it, I wouldn't advocate necessarily that most people read it cover to cover because it's so much to take in. Yeah. There's a lot going on. But at the same time, I think just boiling it down to some of the key takeaways misses a lot of what she's doing with this project. So it's a tough it's a tough one to to talk about and a tough one to figure out how to best uh, approach as a reader or as a teacher. Yeah, and Wolf's writing in general is just dense. Yes. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just she is wordy. She loves words. And actually, in A Room of One's Own, she discusses the difference between feminine and masculine sentences. Mm-hmm. And it feels like she, because she's articulating that, she's really got to lean in here and use um, the power of language in the way that she wants to. And um, that's why I think it's so hard to be like, okay, we're going to like summarize and boil this down yeah. on a podcast because I feel like she would say that's counter to her whole project. Like the project is immersing yourself in those for her term, like feminine sentences and the structure, the spiraling and the tangents. And so it's, I don't know, it's tough. Like I feel a little conflicted about being like, here are the highlights, you know? I know. That being said, 
it is easy to pull out some key pieces here. And so we're going to do our best to give some deep reading and we'll share sort of some summary and discuss those key passages, kind of give you a spark notes version, but with our close reading take on it. Um, and so you don't have to read A Room of One's Own to listen to this episode or to get a lot out of it. You don't have to read it in its entirety. Um, if you want to read along with us, that's great. Um, we have, this isn't technically, we're not like calling this our short story club for the month, but that's probably where we'll discuss this on Discord with our Patreon community. So there are a lot of opportunities here, but um, we're going to do our best to do um, this piece justice, even though we're going to talk about it in kind of bits and pieces a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I really think like bits and pieces is a great way to approach this. And and maybe for our Patreon community, we can share kind of some of the the sections and chapters that we feel are particularly um, relevant or interesting. And so you can immerse yourself in the language while still not tackling the entire text. That makes sense. So Sarah, you mentioned just in our little like voice messages back and forth that you have taught A Room of One's Own before. And I know our listeners love to hear a little bit more about our teaching and classroom experience. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I I taught this. This was one of the first texts we covered in my women in literature class. So this is one that was, because it's a semester long class, I taught it twice a year at least twice a year, depending on how many sections of the the class I had. And that's always really enjoyable because you just get more practice at teaching something versus if you have, if you're, whatever you're teaching in a year-long class, you get to try it. And then it's a full year before you get to think through like, how could I maybe approach that better? So anyways, that's a tangent, but teaching semester-long classes and getting to fine-tune things is really, really great. So my students would purchase the the full text. And we did a lot of reading, close reading this aloud um, in class because I think this is a great text to model close reading. And especially because even as a teacher, somebody who studied this book, I definitely don't understand every passage. And so reading aloud to them the passages that I still struggle with and trying to make sense of them was really enjoyable. We mostly read the first three chapters. We didn't really read um, four and five as as closely, um, but or I, four, five, and six as closely, but I would pull some of what Wolf said about Eliot and Austin and Shakespeare because those are all authors that they would be somewhat familiar with. Oh, the Brontes too, because they, they all read Jane Eyre their sophomore year. Um, but I would do this, like if you're a teacher, you're familiar with the idea of jigsawing. So basically we would like divide each chapter into probably five or six passages. And in small groups, the students would be responsible for kind of exploring the themes. And m- more often then even the themes, the figurative language in each chapter or their little section, because I think that's what can be um, tough about boiling this down to kind of the essence or the themes is she's getting at all of those themes with similes, extended metaphors, um, 
a lot of symbolism. Fiction within an essay. Exactly. Yeah. Storytelling. And so like she's not using like, you know, everything good that we good that we teach students to do in their own essay writing, like using statistics and, you know, backing up your your argument with with facts. Like she's she's not really doing. I mean, she is, but in a very she's different examples. way. She's giving examples, but a lot of them are like her interpretation of <laughs> examples. Yeah. Or like hype, a lot of hypothetical examples, mm-hmm. right? Um so I mean, I I think that and then we would talk about about that. Like why are we taught to prove an argument in this way when actually like isn't a lot of what Wolf is doing maybe more compelling than somebody saying to you this percentage of books in the library is written by men? Like instead she's like, you know, going off on these tangents and lists and um, and ruminating on why this might be the case. So yeah. So I mean, we kind of used it as some of our, to frame some of our questions for the rest of our women in literature class. And I think that's a great way to think about this text from a, as a reader outside of the classroom too, is not like this, that this is the end all be all of um, feminist literature on, on women writers, but that Wolf is posing some really intriguing questions to ask about women writers from the past all the way up till today. Well, that might be a really fun way to frame our episode. Maybe we will bring up some of those questions and carry those with us through this discussion. And then especially when we read To the Lighthouse and discuss that at the end of the month. Um, Even in the introduction to my copy, I have one of those really pretty Mariner classics Mm, versions. Mm -hmm. Um, The introduction said that the thesis of Wolf's piece here is that a woman must have money in a room of her own if she is to write fiction. But that just seems so simplified when you actually read this in its entirety. And it's not the only thesis statement. I think that she's there probably are 12 thesis statements throughout the entire piece that you could um, articulate, even though that is still like, yes, that is the crux of it. That is the title. Um, But I think she's saying so much more than just things about gender um, and class and those structures that are impeding women from writing. She has so much to say about fiction in general and the writer's life and history and really modernist concepts like the essential truth. Um, And so boiling it down to just saying women need a room, they need a space, and they need money, even though that might still hold true today, which I think will be something interesting to talk about, that's just like barely skimming the surface here. I think, though, that if if we think about that thesis statement in terms of how Wolf uses language, I think it really works because I think the room of one's own is – it's obviously a metaphor. So she's talking, right, historically and in terms of, of space to think through apart from the way the world is organized by men, what 
fiction looks like and what humanity looks like and what storytelling looks like. So I I completely agree that it it just feels hard to boil anything down to one sentence, but I think like remembering that all of her sentences, not all, but almost all of her sentences yeah. are, <laughs> are figurative as well as literal. They're working on multiple levels. Then like rather than collapsing the room of one's own into that practical matter, although that is certainly part of it, and expanding it to mean more like a um, figurative space, a figurative like walled off protective enclave. Um, then it, then it allows for more of the other kind of sub theses that we see throughout the, the text. And I think in that way, the, the essay is really fascinating because in the sense that she announces her thesis up front and then spends the rest of the essay demonstrating that it is very in line with how we teach students to write in what she describes as the masculine way. It's just the, um, I don't know, the, <laughs> the approach to doing that is much more winding, which um, I don't know, can make it hard to read, but also really enjoyable. Yeah, I found it rewarding mm-hmm. for sure. Um, where should we start with sort of these sub-theses or um, is there a section that you want to start with? Well, so, I mean, maybe we should say at, at the onset or not at the onset, cause now we're 15 minutes in, <laughs> but, um, that this is an extended essay and it's based off of a couple of lectures that Wolf gave. Um, and she writes it as almost as if it were still a lecture, like she's directly addressing you throughout the the piece. And she she uses the like Oxbridge um, name to suggest that who she's speaking to. Um, And it is, it's winding and she kind of like, she's, she's acting as if she's just thinking these things through kind of on the fly. Like she's like, She's just about to think about what she's going to say for this lecture. And so she sits down by the bank of a river and like thinks about all these things. And then she goes to the library to do some research. And um, so it's both, it's almost a little meta where she is writing this essay, but she's also doing this performance of writing the essay. And you can see, you know, the, the performance, even in the language, like when chapter one changes to chapter two and she says the scene uh, has changed. And so we are kind of following her along this almost play as well. So, I mean, I think chapter one just kind of sets the stage, so to speak, (laughs) Um, (laughs) where she says that she's been asked to speak on women and fiction. And that's maybe not what you would expect to be the topic of this, knowing what we probably all kind of know about, um, about a room of one's own. And she says that she just, she can't talk about women and fiction without talking about economics. And it's very early on, I think in like the second or third, no, it's still the first very long paragraph where she says, 
All I could do was to offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Um, So that is, like you said, the, the thesis. And then, I don't know, I feel like chapter one is um, like still still scene setting. We could probably, is there anything from chapter one that you want to be sure to touch on? I just, uh, I think it's really fun that she goes into detail about the luncheon. Oh yeah. She's like, in novels, (laughs) they always skip talking about the food, but I'm going to talk about the food. She's like, there's always this way where they say all of the witty things that were said. And it's just a, it's a conversation piece. It's a place for dialogue, but then we don't know what everybody ate. And it's way more fun to write about that. And so there's some really fun food descriptions in here. And but I, that's like, I mean, it's so, so smart because it's just kind of a funny aside. But really what she's doing is saying that like fiction overlooks the economic realities of what it takes to have a witty conversation. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's that like oft like embroidered quote that one cannot think well, love well, sleep well if one has not dined well, which I think is like often, again, like quoted in this sort of like quippy, like, oh, Virginia Woolf, she was such a little foodie. <laughs> and and yeah. maybe that's true. But but this is, to me is more along the lines of like the argument for free and reduced lunch in classrooms. Like right. kids cannot it's learn deep. if they're not fed. Like you have to meet mm-hmm. those base requirements before you can engage in those like loftier pursuits. Yeah. Or like your essay is not going to be great unless you eat that snack first. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it, it gets down to, like you said, operating on that very practical level and also the figurative. Um, I found some of those passages with this like mind body connection and just some of the things that she writes about, about like the connection between writers' bodies and their minds or um, the mental load that women are under and how that inhibits their creativity. It feels so ahead of its time. Um, And yet she's also in some parts of this sort of like saying, I hope that years from now we won't be facing the same issues. And she's sort of projecting ahead as well. So um, I I really enjoyed coming across those passages that felt like, oh, like we kind of know about this. Like we know that, like you said, hunger is really important for our brains, yeah. <laughs> not just our bodies. And I think she's she's playing up to one of the like perceived weaknesses of women at the time, which was that they were more embodied beings than men. That men were more intellectual and rational, and women were more almost like animalistic and embodied. And she's basically saying, like, you know, well, men don't have to think about their bodies in the same way because things are just sort of taken care of for them in that way. And I think it's really worth pointing out that everything she's talking about in here really is about the upper classes. Like, a lot of these sentences could be pulled and used to really kind of radically challenge class conventions as well. Um, but, and and she does go there in terms of, you know, talking a little bit about like the Judith Shakespeare story, et cetera. But when she's saying that women are poor, she, she means like, 
aristocratic women are poor. Mm-hmm. Like they're dependent on their their husbands. She's not really talking about impoverished men or women. Um, so just, I guess that's just an, an aside that um, it can feel like a lot of this is very ahead of its time and can feel really radical, but she's still really like, she's talking to the Oxbridge set, right? She's mm-hmm. not like, she's not like leading a class crusade here. Yeah. And that's one of the most common criticisms of this work is that she is kind of talking about class, but it's really not getting to any sort of inequity other than talking about the inequality between men and women. And it is very like, it's a very gender essentialist text as well, which is of its time. Um, There's a lot of Freud mentioned through here. There's a lot talking about like the minds of men versus the minds of women and two genders that she mentions. And so some of that doesn't age as well in our time either. Although she does Um, have her whole piece about how the best writers are androgynous and how like important, I mean, she like clear there's still the binary, but she suggests that the best writers can get in touch with both sides of that binary within themselves, which is, I think, a great argument. Yeah. And it's just really interesting just knowing her um, sexuality, her history and background, thinking about books like Orlando that she wrote where there is that sort of like playing with gender. Um, I did think it was interesting just kind of continuing that thread of like that mind-body connection and men haven't had to think about it. Um, There was a passage, I think it's later in chapter four, when she talks about um, like men and women seem to need to work differently and like different hours of their day are different. And it's, again, it's that thing where it's like, we're still struggling with this, where the nine to five workday is built for the patriarchy and women's hormones fluctuate on a completely different basis. Um, And so it's just, it was getting to something that I'm like, man, some of this, it feels like, okay, this feels like that's in the past. We've resolved a little bit. But so much of it is still like, well, science hasn't even caught up with Virginia Woolf yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so true. Um, I really like, so in in chapter two, she she begins her like, I'm going to go to the library and do some research on her. Her guiding question is, why are women poor? (laughs) Which, yeah, (laughs) uh, is very, very blunt and funny. Monetarily poor or... Mm -hmm poor in the sense that there aren't any books by women on the bookshelves mm-hmm. from a certain time period. Right. And again, again, it's both levels. Yes. Um, and I love that she calls basically the museums and the libraries, et cetera, part of a factory that she kind of is like almost st- stripping away the idea that all of these men who produce work actually are more creative or brilliant than women and that they're just part of the, the these like cogs in this production factory. Um, and what she finds is that there are many, 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 many books about women that are all written by men. And I love the part where she says, <laughs> um, have you any notion how many books are written about women in the course of one year? Have you any notion how many are written by men? 
are you aware that you are perhaps the most discussed animal in the universe? (laughs) (laughs) So great. I also love when she asks, why um, is it so much more interesting or why are women so much more interesting to men than men are to women? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then she she extends that animal metaphor to talk about her claws of steel and beak of brass that she needs to like to get into these these texts and into this system, um, and again, I mean everything in here is multiple layers. I love too the part where she talks about that she's like doodling and she's drawing cartwheels, which I think is where she's telling us like that's how I'm going to approach the organization of this essay. So just follow along. Like I'm in a loop, but I'm always going to come back and move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just so much, so much good, um, good imagery in this section. I think the other thing about chapter two that really stood out to me is um, her passage and her thoughts on anger. Mm -hmm. I found that really fascinating as a theme that's brought out brought um out in her writing throughout this whole entire essay in each chapter she kind of comes back to men's anger and women's anger um and in some ways it seems like she's talking about how like women's anger and keeping women angry um but not letting them obviously express that anger means that then all of that comes out in their writing when they finally get to sit down and write. And that means that what they're writing is tainted by the bitterness and the anger that they feel at being held down in their position in life. Um, But men's anger fuels them um, in creative pursuits and gives them this superiority complex. And they get angry when women are trying to usurp their position in society and their anger is like keeping them in power. And I just thought that this function of anger that she discusses was fascinating. And it just like reminded me of like, well, yeah, we have Andrew Tate podcasting and we have like, there is still this anger that we are dealing with and um, these social structures of like, well, any, any women gaining traction feels like they're making men inferior. Yeah. She says, possibly when the professor insisted a little too emphatically upon the inferiority of women, he was concerned not with their inferiority, but with his own superiority. And I think that, again, like speaking of like ahead of its time, I think that's kind of an argument that we have landed on to talk about the way people respond to all sort of sorts of cries for equity that if you have been privileged, then equality feels like a loss to you in some some way. Um, and it's it, that's basically what she is talking about here. But I do, I love, like you said, that she brings in the anger piece of that. Like not, not um not like a fear or an anxiety around it, but but truly anger. Um, this is also the part where she talks about women as mirrors. Women have served all these centuries as looking glasses, possessing the magic and delicious power of reflecting the figure of man at twice its natural size, which is a fantastic line. And I think, um, I mean, it's, it's in the same paragraph as the piece about anger and superiority because 
I mean, what she's arguing there, right, is that men have put women in this position of inferiority, not just to like increase their own sense of importance, but to provide themselves with a living being that reminds them of how superior they are, right? That becomes women's women's role. And I like what she says that that uh, take it away, the the looking glass, and man may die. <laughs> <laughs> it's dramatic, but is it? <laughs> right. I know. It's so good. Um, the other significant part of uh, if we're moving into chapter three, um, chapter three is where she talks about Shakespeare's sister. Yeah. Um, very, very, very famous passage um, where she's she's basically inventing this um, sister and kind of fictionalizing this journey of like, well, what did Shakespeare have that his sister wouldn't have had? And why would her genius not be expressed in the same way that his was? Which at the same time is like revealing all of these things about um, women's place in history and also expressing her ultimate fangirling over Shakespeare. Yeah, she loves Shakespeare. <laughs> and I think yeah. that that is one of the things that works really well in this piece is like she's not suggesting that men can't write about women or don't know how to or that um, she's not expressing like anger over other male writers. Like she, she does appreciate particularly Shakespeare and she does have a lot of criticisms for other women writers. So there's like this level of kind of fairness that, that I think makes her argument more palatable, but just like feel more authentic. Yeah, she says, if ever a human being got his work expressed completely, it was Shakespeare. If ever a mind was incandescent, unimpeded, I thought, turning again to the bookcase, it was Shakespeare's mind. And that's what she wants for women writers. She wants them to be unimpeded, to have their work expressed completely and wholly and fully in the way that she believes Shakespeare's was. There is this element of genius threaded throughout Mm -hmm. A Room of One's Own, which I found really interesting um, reading after we read Monsters for Book Club um, and sort of that discussion of genius. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just, I think Wolf's concept of what makes genius writing was fun to read about because she's engaging in a lot of literary criticism here as well. Shakespeare is such a good example for her to rest her argument on too, because someone who did not grow up and have like all of the privileges afforded to a lot of the other male writers that she kind of refers to, but was also somebody who was like, you know, paid well to, to do his work and at least well enough to solely do that work. And that becomes the argument that, that she makes is not even that like you need um, an extreme abundance, but just an amount of money that allows you to focus exclusively on your genius and and on your work. And without even fully like spelling that out, she gets to it through him as an example or Judith Shakespeare, his sister, his fake sister. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, this is also the chapter in which we get a really famous quote that's often just like pulled out and used out of context. Um, indeed, I would venture to guess that Anon or Anonymous, who wrote so many poems without signing them, was often a woman. Yeah, I love that. And she talks so much about how women are basically taught, encouraged, forced to not seek recognition and how, and I think that's part of the like a metaphor of a room of one's own is that seeking out of and taking up space um, that women writers have not been encouraged to do. And she talks about the, all of the pen names that various women writers have done. Um, I also like, I, I think one of my favorite kind of secondary components of this text is what she's saying about the way men write women um, mm. versus the way women write men. And this is also the, the section where she says, if women had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her as a person of the utmost importance. Very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, infinitely beautiful and hideous in the extreme. As great as a man, some think even greater. And it's this great juxtaposition of the way she's saying men write women to be these, like, these multi-layered, complicated, uh, beautiful, hideous figures and then the way they treat them in real life as just these looking glasses. It, and I, I think that that is something that really the students in my class kind of latched onto, like thinking about all of the, the women that they had read over the course of their curriculum um, and whether these women felt, felt real or full and how like women write women. Um, it's really, it's, it's something I think, I think that is something that still has a lot of like contemporary application, thinking about the way the gen, the genders all write, e write each other, or write themselves. Is there anything else you want to talk about with chapter three in Shakespeare's sister, or do we want to start to talk about Wolf's? I mean, we thought she fangirled over Shakespeare and then she starts to talk about Austin in chapter four. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, like, uh, like I always used to say with my students, like we could spend an entire semester yeah. reading this aloud and go and, you know, analyzing every sentence. Line by but, line. Yeah, yeah. Let's jump to the, to the Austin stuff. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed reading chapters four and five. I think it starts to get interesting here. Um, she says, um, towards the end of the 18th century, a change came about which, if I were rewriting history, I should describe more fully and think of greater importance than the Crusades or the War of Roses. The middle class woman began to write. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> um, and she, yeah, she talks about Pride and Prejudice and Middlemarch and the Bronte sisters and all of their work. Um and that all of them are connected to both the women writing before them and the women writing after them. Um, and 
Yeah, she says, for masterpieces are not single and solitary births. They are the outcome of many years of thinking in common, of thinking by the body of the people, so that the experience of the mass is behind the single voice. Jane Austen should have laid a wreath upon the grave of Fanny Burney and George Eliot done homage to the robust shade of Eliza Carter. Um, And just talking about like really giving the women, the foremothers, their, their flowers and their praise for paving the way, um, which is lovely, but also um, I just think that statement about masterpieces are not single solitary births is beautiful. And also I was like, hmm. Wolf, I think you'd like novel pairings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And I think that she is, you know, is maybe not so subtly taking a dig at that idea of the solitary genius, which is how we often still, still how we often like to think about writers um, is that they have this, this idea and they, they sit in their room and it, it almost sounds like Wolf would be in favor of that idea from the title. If you oversimplified this um, and just penned their next masterpiece, but that's, that's not what she's saying. Um, I, I think too, one of the things that I really appreciate about this section is the way she talks about like how genius and circumstance are equally important. Like she clearly thinks that, that some people are born more talented than others, but she doesn't just think that like both, um, education, opportunity, circumstance is, is equally, they're all equally important to, to what she's saying. I love when she talks about that Jane Austen's literary training was training in the observation of character in the analysis of emotions. And then how later in that paragraph, she says that her Jane Austen's gift and her circumstances matched each other completely. I think that is an incredibly important point because I think that's the basis on what she goes on to critique some other texts by women writers, but what she's really critiquing is the circumstance those women found themselves in. So basically she's saying like Jane Austen's gift was writing novels of manners and she happened to live in circumstances that allowed her to perceive a lot, take notes on character, and then write these great masterpieces where she basically suggests that like Charlotte Bronte, like a a romance within this kind of confined space was not maybe the best avenue for her gift, but but she didn't have the opportunity or the circumstances to write anything broader. It's also where she talks about how she thinks George Eliot should have written histories instead of novels, but that wasn't an opportunity. That wasn't something allowed of, of women at the time. And you can, I I think like, I disagree. Like I, I think Middlemarch is a lovely novel, but you can see what she's getting at where like women had been confined to only writing a certain type of book. And for some women that really was what fit their gift and their genius, like in the case of Jane Austen. And for other women, you taste their genius, even though they are perhaps limited by the genre they were permitted to write. And she's getting to the sentence level. I mean, she talks about the sentence level of Jane Eyre. And when I thus alone, I not unfrequently heard Grace Poole's laugh 
And Wolf says, this is an awkward break, I thought. And then she talks about like kind of conjecturing over what might have stopped Bronte from writing and interrupted her writing so that that made for an awkward break or made Mm -hmm. for a jerky kind of sentence. And I just thought that was fascinating. I also, I underlined the passage that precedes this um, discussion that you were talking about, Sarah, where she says, um, looking at the four famous names, what did George Eliot have in common with Emily Bronte? And did Charlotte Bronte fail to understand Jane Austen. And then she says, save for the possibly relevant fact that not one of them had a child, four more incongruous characters could not have met together in a room, um, so much so that it is tempting to invent a meeting and a dialogue between them, which I would love to read I that know, dialogue. I know, I wish that she had. Go <laughs> right? <out> invent it. <laughs> um, but it's not a possibly relevant fact. It's a huge fact mm-hmm. that none of them had a child. When you're talking about how circumstances match with what they're writing, that is big. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Yeah. It's not possibly relevant. It's like maybe the most relevant in terms of what these women were able to accomplish and write, how much they were able to write, and that they were able to get things published because they were not in the midst of mothering as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I do wish that's something she went into more. But I I think that you know everything she writes about touches on that without as much like direct confrontation of that as I might might have liked. Yeah. Um let's see what else in chapter 4 do I have underlined. Um I thought it was really interesting as she's um talking about basically just that women writers are having to use the tools that were created by men. And it really reminded me of the Audre Lorde quote about dismantling the house with the tools of the oppressor, Mm -hmm. Um, which is like not what Wolf is getting at. Like Wolf is writing about middle to upper class white women, but that connection is so strong in those passages. And um, I really found sort of the I would love to dig deeper into the linguistics and the sentence structure that she's talking about, which she gets into a little bit um, throughout here. Um, I I really found that portion fascinating. All right. I um, We could talk about the Marys or, I mean, I also, I love the, um, I love the Chloe-liked, Olivia section where she says, do not start, do do not blush. Let us admit in the privacy of our own society that these things sometimes happen. Sometimes women do like women. Um, But I I think, you know, in addition to a um, a very brief but also blunt conversation about um, same-sex attraction and desire, she also is like, it's also like a little bit of like a, a forerunner of like the Bechdel test about how, you know, you would think that if you read all of these books by men, you would think that women never talked to each other. Yeah. <laughs> women never interacted <laughs> with each other, only with men. Um, I think that's a really fun exercise and something I would sometimes have students do is to take a a book and be like, okay, if you knew nothing about context, like what would you think like about women just by reading this yeah. book. Um, and I, I love that she 
points that out. I agree. I literally have in my notes the Bechdel test. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Feels like a forerunner. Um, yeah, that that passage is really I, I love the the cheekiness of like some women like women, wink. And then um just really talking about women's relationships on the page and sharing how it's more interesting to read about complicated relationships between women. I think if there's if there's nothing else um that you want to make sure you want to touch on, I feel like we could talk a little bit about the way this ends. I mean, there is, we, we touched on the idea that, that great writers are androgynous. She says, um, one must turn back to Shakespeare then for Shakespeare was androgynous. And so was Keats and Stern and Cooper and Lamb and Coleridge. <laughs> Shelley perhaps was sexless. Milton and Ben Johnson <laughs> had a dash too much of the male in them. So had Wordsworth and Tolstoy. In our time, Proust was wholly androgynous androgynous, if not perhaps a little too much of a woman. But that failing is too rare for one to complain about, since without some mixture of the kind of intellect seems to predominate and the other faculties of the mind harden and become barren. And I I think that idea of barrenness is fascinating, right? Because basically, like she's saying, that you need a balance of both sexes in your mind in order to birth something creative. Um, yeah. So, so interesting. And here she gets back to the idea of women and fiction and looped us all the way back to what she said she was going to be, be talking about in this pretend and kind of real lecture. What did you think of where she fully ended her essay? Mm, coming back to Shakespeare's sister. Mm-hmm. She comes back to Shakespeare's sister and she says, drawing her life from the lives of the unknown her, who were her forerunners as her brother did before her, she will be born. As for her coming without the preparation, without that effort on our part, without that determination that when she is born again, she will find it possible to live and write her poetry. That we cannot expect, for that would be impossible. But I maintain that she would come if we worked for her, and that so to work, even in poverty and obscurity, is worthwhile. I just thought that final sentence was fascinating because it kind of upends the whole thing. Her thesis, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> where it's like, yes, I am arguing that women need space, metaphorical and physical, and they need money or wealth of some sort, Um, whether that's monetary wealth or that is the wealth of centuries of knowledge and centuries of building upon our literary tradition. But even if you don't have those things, it's still worth it to write and you can still do it. She's not saying women can't write without those things. And so I, I mean... I love a rhetorically challenging text like that where it's like, yeah, I'm going to just like contrast my whole argument right away. Um, And so I loved it rhetorically speaking, but I mean, it's such a like, don't you feel like she was really cheering you on as a writer, Sarah? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I think it's great. And I think that, you know, one of the things that she's talking about is right back to that idea of genius. Like, 
like to her, there have been so few and, and maybe, maybe some readers find this belittling of other women writers, but she's kind of saying there haven't been as many women writer geniuses because of the lack of, of systems. Um, but that it, that we all have to work. And I think, and I think it's important to remember that she is talking to women. We know that because of when she says the, like, you are the most discussed creature on, on earth, but she's, she's also like indirectly talking to men. So I think she's saying that we all need to work to fix, to create the conditions upon which a Judith Shakespeare could emerge. And part of that work is for women to do creative things anyway, even when it's impossibly hard. And yeah, I think that is really motivating. And, um, I, you know, she, Wolf wasn't the most supportive of other women artists, which you might not, <laughs> might not. You might not, but up. you might pick up on yeah. it. And she's pretty critical in yes. here mm-hmm. um, of, you know, she's reading Jane Eyre and being critical of it, of um, the novel that she's reading by like a young writer who she's pretty critical mm-hmm. of. So, but, and she, but she was also very competitive. And so like, you yeah. would think that she, given what she says here, she might see a woman who she thinks is like, of equal genius to her and want to promote that. But like any contemporary women writers that she felt threatened by, she was very dismissive of. So, but I, I mean, she's just, she's a person. She's a real person. Yeah. Her like essays and ideals don't always align with how we fully uh, navigate through the world. I, okay. I have one final question because this, this sentence always came up as something that my students wanted to discuss it's much earlier in the text um, where she says, because remember this is written like around the time of women, the women's suffrage movement. She says, of the two, the vote and the money, the money I own seemed infinitely the more important. And I feel like as um, good, like active American citizens, and especially I think for students who were 18 or turning 18, that was like kind of, very, a very challenging argument to think through, like to say that it's more important to to have money than to have a say in government. And I don't know. I'm curious what you think about that line, or or I don't know if you think it has any contemporary application. As a jaded millennial, yeah, I like, know. Of course, I mean, the money now is I more feel important. Like Are you like, kidding me? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but like ten years ago, I think maybe less. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can understand that sort of democratic idealism. Um, And I think that's, I wouldn't want 18-year-olds to think otherwise as they're entering the voting booth. You know what I mean? Like, I would, I want them to believe that their vote is counting and to be participating. I think what Wolf is getting at too was um, not just money, but women's inability to own property yeah. Um, I think about that here too, like with like women not being able to get credit cards in their own name until the 1970s and which thing maybe Which was had, so recent. Yeah. Right. I know. And thinking about like which of which thing like being able to vote or being able to have your own credit card had more, more tangible impact on women's life. And it was probably the money. Yeah. And 
you know, individually, that's the case. But then you multiply it. And Wolf kind of talks about this a couple of times, that sort of like individual mind versus the collective. Um, At the very end of the essay, let me see where I had that marked, Um, where she's, she's talking about like, I'm not talking about individual changes, even though those are important. Um, Oh, here it is. My belief is that if we live another century or so, I'm talking of the common life, which is the real life, and not of the little separate lives, which we live as individuals. I think, you know, when you're talking about money, like that's something, yes, individually, but then as you multiply it and collectively, it just, it frees up a part of your mind that was worried or that was having to ask permission so much of this is really just about like how much brain space do you have? Mm-hmm. We talk about the mental load these days, which wasn't in the lexicon of Virginia Woolf, but a lot of that is what she's talking about is having the full faculty of your mind and faculty of your genius. That is a mental load issue. And the ability to vote and participate in politics, that's great for the collective, but it's not going to free your mind up if you can't afford things that you need or that you want in order to pursue your dream. So um, I think that like individual versus collective is really interesting to think about. Um, Yeah. I don't know. That is a really, I can totally see why I, I probably would have pulled that out at 18 too. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on it to add? No, but I do think it could be the beginning of a great dystopian novel where people sell their votes Hmm. for, you know, greater stability and economic freedom. I don't know. That would be fascinating. Somebody should write it. I'm not a fiction writer. So anyone listening. Do you know how quick people really would do that? (laughs) Yeah. No, I know. It's, it really, it is really hard to imagine that you're contributing to any sort of collective good. Mm Mm-hmm when you are struggling to make it on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. And I would like, I, I feel like that's, that's what would make it such an interesting premise is because it, it probably is, it is the right choice for so not the right choice, but like you could see like the, com, the compelling element for on that individual level and that tension between like taking care of oneself as an individual and then striving to do something for the collective like and and can you even do something for the collective without all of your basic needs met like she says you know in the beginning that in order to like do anything else well you have to dine well (laughs) like you have to have your basic needs met heck I'm ready to sell my vote to pay for my $300 bill that I rang up at Costco yesterday (laughs) I know yeah (laughs) So, I mean, not really, but like, right? Ouch! Yeah. And how am I supposed to like save for a house if I keep spending this much money on groceries? Yeah, Virginia Woolf, she's she's got something there. So we've definitely touched on contemporary application as we've talked through all of these all of these ideas. Um, is there anything more you want to say about that, or maybe other like? recommendations for reading that feel in line with this or challenging towards it? 
Well, there's a book that's been on my shelf for a long time, and I just haven't read it yet, but I think now might be the perfect time because I think it's in conversation um, with Virginia Woolf, and reading them back to back is probably going to be a really rich experience. Um, I don't know if you've heard of this book, The Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood, and the Mind Baby Problem by Julie Phillips. Yeah, I have. Um, But I haven't read it. I'm really excited to read it. I have it. Um, And so I'm like, okay, well, I really need to open it up and read it now after reading Wolf because um, in the description, it says, what does it mean to create not in a room of one's own, but in a domestic space? Do children and genius rule each other out? Um, And Julie Phillips is a biographer. And so she talks about the struggle of brilliant artists and writers. She writes about Doris Lessing, who had to choose between motherhood and herself, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, who found stability in family life for her to be able to create, and Audre Lorde, whose queer polyamorous union um, created space for her to raise children in a different way, and Alice Neal, who once, this is where the title comes from, to finish a painting, she was said to have left her baby on the fire escape of her New York apartment. Um, And so it's just pondering maternal um, issues with creativity. And um, as a mom who is in a creative field and um, working on balancing that creativity and finding the metaphorical space, especially when the mental load is so heavy. Um, I'm really interested in this book. And it's, I mean, biography can sometimes sound kind of intimidating, but this is like a pretty slim volume. Um, So I'm really excited to read this one and we'll certainly report back about it. Um, If you're interested in listening to the audiobook, it clocks in about nine hours, which is a nice audiobook format. So that's one that I am looking at. Um, Of course, like I said, I was thinking of Audre Lorde's work Um, as kind of like a good next step. If you are interested in some of the concerns that Virginia Woolf brought up, but you're like, this doesn't go far enough to discussing any sort of um, diversity and community and um, like class struggles (laughs) in any significant way for where we are today. Um, We did talk about Sister Outsider on the podcast. um, So that's a, a good one to go for. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Do you have any, Sarah? I'll, I'll think of any other ones that came to mind. Um, How to Think Like a Woman by Reagan Peña Luna, which came out this year about like women and philosophy and why there's, are so few women in philosophy feels like a very, um, similar project. Like she's basically asking the same question about women and philosophy as Wolf is asking about women in fiction, but obviously in a much more modern landscape. And I, I, there are so many similar arguments. Like she talks so much about like, like the way male philosophy professors invoke the idea of thought experiments in order to like say really horrible things and allow um, philosophy students to go down really dark paths and, and that kind of like embodied reality versus like pure intellect idea. Um, I also, another book that came out this year, um, Cross Stitch by Jasmina Barrera. This actually comes out, um, November 7th. So it will be 
out right as this episode releases. She she also she wrote um um she wrote an an essay about motherhood and women and art, which I have not read yet, or, or a whole text, an extended essay. This is a piece of fiction about three young girls as friends and wanting to pursue creative endeavors or writing or the study of literature. And there's a lot in here about how differently women think about art. Like she talks about how women think about art as like echoes of what other women, women who have come before, which is very in line with, uh, with Wolf. And it's just a, it's a great, great story. And it's, it's pretty short, just over 200 pages. And then I would really like to read the new, um, um, George Eliot biography by Claire Carlisle, uh, called the marriage question, um, about like this double life of like being not, not legally a wife, but a wife and a, a writer. Um, it, it sounds great, but it is chunky. It's like 400 pages, which is why I haven't picked it up yet. All right. I think that brings us to the end of our mashup episode, yeah. a little bit short story club, a little bit modern readers, and a tiny little TBR toppler or pairings at the end for you. We hope that you enjoyed this episode style and we would love to hear about it and what you would like us to read next and discuss as far as short texts are concerned. If you really enjoyed this kind of deep reading, close reading of passages, you should absolutely check out our bonus content on Patreon where we have these deeper reading discussions and some casual conversations about classic and contemporary issues in the publishing world. And so if you kind of like this like really close view and then zooming out, that's what a lot of our bonus content on Patreon looks like. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to our Friday bonus episodes. And for $10 a month, you can access our classes, events, and more. So go to patreon.com slash novel pairings and sign up to join us for a bunch of nerdy conversation today. You can also keep in touch with us by following us on Instagram at novel pairings pod, or you can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at novelpairings.substack.com, where we've got announcements, reading tips, and book recommendations, and so much more. Our Novel Pairings producers make this show possible. We're sending a big thank you to Emma, Dilma, Kathy, Amy, Jody, and Diane. And thanks to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. We'll be back soon with another episode on Virginia Woolf discussing To the Lighthouse. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than a